There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Recently, someone contacted me very concerned because she was approached by those who called themselves Christians who informed her that they no longer believed in a literal, visible return of Jesus Christ, neither do they believe in a literal rapture, or more correctly, a catching away of the church to meet the Lord in the air when he returns. She asked my opinion, so I said I would do my podcast on it this week, because I assumed if she's facing this doctrinal issue and needs answers— then many of the rest of you may be facing it as well. A good place to start is the Mount of Olives. Jesus had just finished giving some final instructions to his disciples concerning the kingdom of God, which was his major emphasis. He did not come to start a denomination. He came to usher the kingdom of God into this world, and we need to be kingdom-minded people. Now listen to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, there are some key issues, some key statements in this passage that need to be highlighted, and you need to store them in your memory because we're going to be referencing these things later on. Number one, he was literally taken up. They looked up after he went up into heaven. And number two, a literal cloud received him out of their sight. It wasn't a figurative thing. It wasn't a symbolic thing. It wasn't a spiritual thing. It was a literal cloud that received him out of their sight. The two men, who were most likely angels, assuming human form, said that he would return, quote-unquote, in like manner. And so that means if it was literal and visible when he ascended up toward heaven, then certainly it should be literal and visible when he descends at his return. Let's get some more supportive evidence, though. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 are very important verses. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 is also a very important verse. Let's read it. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, some are asserting that these statements are all symbolic metaphorical, and should be interpreted spiritually, not literally. Could that be true? It says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And those who have this slant of interpretation on that passage say that really means that we're being caught up in the Spirit not in the literal air of the atmosphere, but caught up in the Holy Spirit into a sensation of being in heavenly places in Christ. Could that be true? Is it symbolic? Is the word air not really referring to air? Are the, is the word clouds not really referring to clouds? Is the phrase caught up together not really referring to rising higher in a physical sense? Actually, when you go to the original Greek, the word that is translated caught up is harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. And it means to seize or to take by force. And that sounds literal to me. However, there are other places in the New Testament where it is used figuratively. It is used symbolically. One of those places is Jude chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Listen to these two verses. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, that's not talking about a literal fire. Pulling them out of the fire, that talks about a life that is on fire with the destructive elements of sin and evil, and it could even be a reference to the afterlife that awaits those who are wicked and rebellious, but still, in a figurative sense, you're not literally jerking somebody out of fire that's burning them up when you witness to them. So if it's used symbolically there, is it possible it could have been symbolic in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Also, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul seemed to be talking about himself uh, and didn't want to sound like he was boasting, but he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. 
Now, when that statement was made, it was describing a spiritual experience, an ecstatic experience of actually visiting the third heaven. So powerful that he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body when it took place. Now, incidentally, when something like this happens, it does not happen because someone uses some kind of metaphysical approach or some kind of occult formula in order to have out-of-body experiences. It may happen at the will of God to certain key individuals. It's certainly not a common experience, but it's not something you can seek after or force into happening because you use the right combination of practices in your prayer life. That's not the way it works. Anyway, he said, I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, he was not talking about literally and physically, but a spiritual experience. So if the writer of Second Corinthians, Paul the Apostle, would use that phraseology talking about an encounter with God, then is it possible that 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, could be interpreted in a similar way. Let's move on. There's another place that we need to visit, Acts chapter 8, verse 39. And I tend to think this one, though, is literal. Philip had just witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptized him. And then as soon as that took place, the Bible says in Acts 8, 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Harpazo, the Holy Spirit caught him away. Well, was that literal? I believe physically he was whisked away to another location because he was found in Azotus, 35 miles away, preaching the gospel. He was translated, which again is another rare experience, but certainly biblical. It was not metaphorical. It was not symbolic. Seems to me it was literal. So the same kind of phrase is used when it's literal and when it's symbolic. Now let's go to the word air. When 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word that is translated air is aer, A-E-R, and is found seven times in the New Testament. Now, the people that spiritualize 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, want you to believe that being caught up in the air really means being caught up in the Holy Spirit. Let's find out how the Greek word translated air is used in other parts of the New Testament. Let's go to Acts chapter 22, verses 22 and 23. Paul was preaching to some Jews at the temple in Jerusalem, and at a certain point when he talked about how God told him to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, they screamed out and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he's not fit to live. And then they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. 
Same Greek word, literal interpretation. That was not symbolic. That was not metaphorical. Another time when it's literal is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. The writer says, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. And that's literally talking about someone swinging his fist in the air, literal air, not metaphorical, not symbolic. Another literal use of the word, I err. First, First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, verse 9 says, so likewise, Unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. However, there are times when the word is used either symbolically or spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 is referring to the devil and it says, that at one time we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now, wait just a second. I've never seen Satan floating around in the literal air. He doesn't jump from one cloud to the next. So why would he be called the prince of the power of the air? I believe it's because there is another realm concentric with the atmosphere around the earth that you could call the second heaven, where I believe great conflict takes place between angels and demonic powers vying for the control of this world. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth and the universe, the cosmos beyond. But the second heaven is like an intermediate realm. And that's the realm where Satan and his satanic forces are launching attack after attack to somehow influence this world. Satan is not in hell directing demons from that vantage point. I know you've seen a lot of plays that depict that happening, but it's not biblical, not at all. But this is a figurative use of the word, or at least a metaphorical use of the word air, because it's not literally the air, but a realm that is concentric with the atmosphere around the earth, a spiritual realm occupied by angels and demons. Hmm. Well, that's food for thought, isn't it? What about Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2? This is the passage where the fifth angel sounds a trumpet or a shofar. And John said, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Well, that was not literal but that was a symbolic image in a vision depicting something that would be fulfilled in a similar but not exact way. And then Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. During the vials of wrath, or bowls of wrath, they're called in some versions of the Bible. 
Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple in heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, a mighty and great earthquake, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Well, again, that's not literally something being poured into the atmosphere, but a symbolic image in a vision. So we see that the word air is used both literally and metaphorically. I have to admit that. But we have a double image conveyed in our main key verse that uses both the word air and the word clouds. Let me read it again along with Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. I don't want you to forget these things. Should they be taken literally or metaphorically. For Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. In Revelation 1.7, behold, he comes with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they who pierced him, all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So, how do we react to all of this? Are there instances when clouds are referring to human beings in a poetical or metaphorical sense? Because those who promote this idea that we should spiritualize 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, tend to say that we are the clouds that Jesus is coming in. That anyone who's been saved is going to be the means by which the second coming of Christ takes place as we arrive at a place of spiritual maturity and the sons of God are manifested in the world, then the second coming of Christ takes place. And we are those clouds according to them. Well, let me share with you that there are times where clouds refer to human beings metaphorically. Jude chapter 1 Verses 12 and 13, talking about false teachers, that these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And so these false teachers are symbolized by wandering stars, raging waves of the sea, trees whose fruit is withering and dying, and clouds without water. So it's all poetical references that bring up different ways of describing these false teachers. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 does the same thing. Describing those kind of individuals, Peter said, These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And then, of course, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Yes, I admit those three references do use clouds as symbolic of human beings. However, when it was a cloud that received him out of their sight on the Mount of Olives, that was not a symbolic cloud. It was a literal cloud. If it was not a physical cloud like you see in the atmosphere, it was a cloud of the glory of God. It was God's radiant glory assuming the image of a cloud, a heavenly kind of cloud, a celestial kind of cloud. There's some other factors in scriptures we need to consider. Number one, the scripture says that God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. God will bring with him. It didn't say he would come in them, but God would bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And then in Jude chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. When he comes back again, he will be accompanied with all his holy angels and ten thousands of his saints, according to this passage. Well, that doesn't sound like a spiritual, invisible coming where he returns in the spirit of those who have been yielded to him. And then, of course, it also says, number two, that the dead in Christ shall rise first. So if the resurrection of the dead is literal, then the translation of living believers must be literal. Because, number three, we who are alive shall not precede those who are dead. In other words, the dead in Christ, the resurrection of those who are in the grave, who were once committed believers, must take place first. Is that literal? Yes. The resurrection is literal. Will there be a literal shout? The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. Yes, it's a literal shout. I tend to believe it will be the Lord who shouts. And what will he shout? Well, nobody knows, but I have this idea that maybe he'll shout, I am that I am, is what he declared from the time he visited Moses in the burning bush to all those occurrences when he walked on the earth and said, I am, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he said, before Abraham was, I am. And then in the garden, when he said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he, and they fell to the ground with the intensity of that statement coming out of his mouth. I would not be surprised if he descends from heaven saying, I am that I am. We'll see. And thank God I want to be there. And I certainly want you to be there as a part of that grand experience when it takes place. Will there be a literal archangel that will announce his return? Yes, that's not figurative. Will there be a literal trumpet or possibly a heavenly kind of shofar. Yes, absolutely. There will be the sound of a trumpet. So if all these other things are literal, then I've got to believe that the clouds are literal. Behold, he comes with clouds, and they may be rolling clouds of the glory of God, or they may be literal clouds in the upper atmosphere. But still, those are literal clouds. And I believe we will literally be caught up to meet him in the air. Well, when will that take place and why will that take place? 
Why are we going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? Well, first, let me tell you when it's going to take place. Matthew 24, verse 29 through 31 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That sounds like a literal vision of the Lord coming with rolling clouds coming before him. What majesty, what power is conveyed by that description? And that happens right after the tribulation of those days, right at the end of this age. I believe that the coming of the Lord will be literal and physical. Let me read Zechariah 14, verses 2 through 4. It says, I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. Now, here's an interesting thought. When all nations gather together against Jerusalem to battle, I'm sure they're going to think that it's their choice to somehow subjugate the Jewish people and make them conform to world opinion as declared in the United Nations. But it's God who is really invisibly, subliminally influencing them to do that. He said, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And listen to this, verse 4 of Zechariah 14 And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The same place he left from is the place he's returning to. Why? Because the Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane was, where his blood soaked into the ground as he struggled in prayer and said, Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Most people, when they go through deeply painful experiences, want to avoid any remembrance of that location. And quite often, they'll drive out of their way to prevent from going by a place that reminds them of former emotional pain. But Jesus is quite the opposite. He left from and is returning to the very spot where he was so pained, he sweated blood in agony of prayer. It's his way of saying, I put it under my feet. But that's literal. It didn't say that that was figurative or some kind of mystical language. But literally, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And then the Bible goes on to say the mountain will be split in two with the intensity of his return. Now, when is that going to take place? John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. Listen to what it says. Jesus declared, This is the will of the Father who has sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Next verse. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice he did not say seven years before the last day or three and a half years before the last day or a couple of years before the last day. He said this 
coming of the Lord and this catching away to meet him in the air will happen at the last day, the last 24-hour period of this age, which the early church believed. So we're going to pass through until the very last day, and then we'll be caught up to meet the Lord. Well, if the resurrection of the dead and the catching away of the living believers happens on the last day, and it happens right when Jesus comes back again, why is it necessary? If he's coming back to the earth to reign here, and we're going to reign with him, our ultimate destiny is not heaven. Our ultimate destiny is to reign right here on the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And why, why is the catching away even necessary? Well, I liken it to this. When a Roman general or an emperor is returning from battle, having vanquished an enemy and conquered and won the victory for his people. As that emperor or as that general returns to his city, the inhabitants, the citizenry of that city will run outside of the city with jubilation to welcome the returning king, to welcome the returning general, to usher him back into the city with much fanfare. Similar to that, when Jesus returns back again, yes, we will rise to meet him. And I believe the primary purpose is to, in a celebratory way, rejoice with him as he returns to this planet. Rejoice with him as he sets up his kingdom fully in this world. Rejoice with him as he conquers death, raises the dead, and as we are changed into his image. Yes, we'll rise to meet him in a joyous, ecstatic way and then usher this King of Kings and Lord of Lords to his rightful place of reigning. There may be another reason, too. There is a mysterious passage, and I'll end with this, in Isaiah chapter 26, verses 19, 20, and 21. The prophet said, Your dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover slain. Those three verses may be a mysterious key. Could it be that right before the final indignation and wrath of God is poured out on this planet, and that could happen in one day. Listen, the final holocaust, the final destruction of this world might not take very long. A nuclear holocaust devouring this planet could happen within a few hours. Could it be that as Jesus returns, he will catch his people up on that last day, because a lot can happen in one 24-hour period, to meet him in the air. And we abide there with him for just a few moments while the world beneath us is destroyed. And then we come back to set up the kingdom of God on this planet. Come, my people, hide yourself, as it were, but for a moment until the indignation is overpassed. That's questionable. That's debatable. 
I don't know if that's exactly how it will work. I know they had all the prophecies about his first coming, and they missed it and interpreted many of them wrong. So we could be interpreting some things wrong concerning his second coming, but there's something I do not believe is wrong, not in the slightest bit, and that is my insistence. I assert unequivocally that the word air and the word clouds is to be taken literally in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Behold, he cometh with clouds that could be literal glory clouds from heaven or atmospheric clouds, but it is clouds, not people. Even though clouds have been used representative or symbolic of people in certain obscure passages, I believe when you line all of these passages up side by side, you have to interpret them literally. So that's my answer to my dear friend who was troubled over what was presented to her recently, that all of these ideas should be interpreted metaphorically, symbolically, and spiritually, know quite a bit of what refers to the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, and the catching away of living believers should be taken literally. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.